premise of the program is housing choice voucher with choice being the operative word. That means tenants should be able to take that voucher and get into a better neighborhood, a better school system, a school system where they have more resources. Welcome to the Property Management Brainstorm Show with Bob Preston. Bob is the CEO, owner, and broker of North County Property Group, the fastest growing and top-ranked property management company in San Diego County, California. This podcast is for property managers and real estate investors who want to stay on top of leading trends in managing their property assets. You'll hear from leading professionals on the best practices for growing your property management business, successfully renting your properties, and how to make sure your properties are managed correctly. Now, here is your host, Bob Preston. Hello and welcome to all you brainstormers who are listening in today. This is Bob Preston, your host of the show, broadcasting from our studio at North County Property Group in Del Mar, California. If you're new here, please subscribe so you have ongoing access to all of our great episodes. And if you like what you hear, please pay it forward with a positive review. The Housing Choice Voucher Program, often referred to as Section 8, is federal government assistance administered by HUD for very low-income families, the elderly, and the disabled to afford decent, safe, and sanitary housing in the private market. Since housing assistance is provided on behalf of the family or individual, participants can find their own housing, including single-family homes, townhouses, and apartments. The participant is free to choose any housing that meets the requirements of the program and is not limited to units located in subsidized housing projects. So the goal then of the Section 8 program is to deliver on its promise of housing choice and opportunity for low-income families, elderly, and disabled individuals. On the show today, I have a panel of guests, property managers who are members of NARPM, the National Association of Residential Property Managers, as well as Tyler Craddock, the Government Affairs Director for NARPM, to discuss Section 8, how it works, and the responsibilities in the program of the tenant, the landlord, the housing agency, and, of course, HUD. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. So great you're all with me here today to discuss this important topic. I was hoping to kick things off. Each of you could just introduce yourself, the name of your company, and where you're located. So, Tyler, let's start with you. Hi, Bob. It's great to be joining you today. My name is Tyler Craddock. I'm the Government Affairs Director for the National Association of Residential Property Managers. My office is located in Washington, D.C. I also have an office in Richmond, Virginia. Terrific. Hey, Patty, how about you? Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm Patty Robertson. I own a property management brokerage in Hampton Roads, Virginia called PMI Virginia. And I also serve on a one of our local city rental advisory boards called Norfolk Rent Ready in Norfolk. So do a lot of Section 8, and I can't wait to talk about this topic. Wonderful. Amanda, how about you? Hi, Bob. Yes, my name is Amanda Hahn, and I'm with Cornerstone Properties, and we're located on the island of Oahu here in Hawaii. And I'm the previous Government Affairs Committee uh, Chair for the National Committee for NARPM. All right. Tyler. Patty, Amanda, you've all got great qualifications. This is going to be a great conversation to start talking about Section 8 and this topic. Let's go ahead and kick things off. Tyler, in your capacity with NARPM, you might be best prepared to explain the overall housing voucher program policies, and maybe if there are some changes that might be coming into the fold in 2021 and beyond. Sure, happy to do it. Uh, In a nutshell, housing choice vouchers, for those who've not worked with them, in essence, a replacement for public housing. We built buildings, we built large towers in in different parts of cities, and, and that's how we house people. 
the way the housing choice voucher program uh, developed was was as a way that, that that same consumer right can take that voucher to a participating landlord and live in a community of their choice. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of, of developments of ideas of things that are being kicked around, if you will, that, that I think are, are bear some some discussion. Uh, the first is the idea of reforming the program. Let's make the program so nice that people want to participate in it. And so that was the genesis for a piece of legislation that's working its way through the Senate now, and it's called the Choice and Affordable Housing Act. It's a bipartisan bill, but here are a few of the things that, that it's meant to do. Uh, first of all, um, they want to provide funds to PHAs, that's public housing authorities, uh, to be able to offer signing bonuses to landlords who rent a unit to a housing choice voucher holder in a low poverty area. So this is some extra incentive for, for those things to do that. In addition, uh, it provides funding for uh, security deposit assistance. There are funds there to help uh, incentivize PHAs to maintain a dedicated landlord liaison on staff. This bill would also make more use of small area fair market rents. And that's very important because what this would do is say that, okay, if you're in those higher opportunity areas where housing costs are usually more, uh, that housing choice voucher would be worth a little more. Uh, it would also uh, try to get at some of the inspection delays and pain points that that uh, uh, housing providers have experienced. For properties coming into the program, it would allow the, the housing provider to, to request a, a pre-inspection of their unit. Mm-hmm. In other words, as it stands now, you have to have that, that, that applicant and have him or her qualified. Then you say, housing authority, I need you to inspect this unit. Sure. And that starts a timeline that can can sometimes this lets you preemptively do that. Now, a second bill that goes in a a, a different direction with Section Eight, called HR four four nine six, the Ending Homelessness Act of twenty twenty one. This bill, just by its very nature, has legs because it's been introduced by Maxine Waters, who uh, she's the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. If Chair Waters puts her name on something, it automatically has weight and needs to be dealt with. Basically, what that would do. Is, is make Section 8 an entitlement. What's also in that bill that's of particular interest or would be of particular interest to property managers and housing providers is that it also provides national source of income protection. In other words, a, a housing provider can't say, oh, I don't participate in the Housing Choice Voucher Program. You have to treat that and qualify that person just the same as if it was good old-fashioned W-2 income. And now the, the third thing, and I'll cover it very quickly, uh, that we see happening on the state level with regard to Section 8 uh, is this continuing discussion of source of income protection. Uh, in states that did not have it, uh, and in a number of those places, uh, that's a legislative issue that's fought out every every year. Okay. So those those are the three big sort of directions and areas and policy things that are that are being talked about. Happy to as we go on to discuss those or answer any questions about those. Super helpful, Tyler. Thanks for the summary. So these are I take it some improvements that are being proposed into the program and some observers who track these programs and advocate groups feel that the overall goals of the housing voucher program or the section eight, as we commonly call it, has just really kind of proved elusive, right? It really hasn't fulfilled the true promise of housing security and perhaps geographic choice. Patty and Amanda, any comments on that? I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts about that? Obviously there's some new, there's some reform being introduced, which Tyler's reviewed. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're exactly right. Um, the whole 
premise of the program is housing choice voucher with choice being the operative word. That means tenants should be able to take that voucher and get into a better neighborhood, a better school system, a school system where they have more resources. But the reality is these are always low income um, households. And low-income households, they do have to have, have some kind of income to be in the program. So if, they're, if they don't have disability and Social Security, that means they have to work. And most of them have children. And if you work and have children, that means you have to have child care. And child care is very, very expensive. There's very few resources available uh, for child care, even though they do have resources available for rent and, you know, food stamps and 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 some, some other things. So the re- while they can take their voucher and live any place they want, transportation is all oftentimes some an issue. Either they don't have a car, so they're using public transportation, or they have undependable transportation, or just the budget of gas every week is a significant uh, budget item in you know a low-income household. So the rea- while they can take their voucher any place they want, the reality is they end up wanting to stay near family members so that they have some help with childcare. So those pockets of poverty where they came from, they end up in my vantage point in my world going back and choosing to live in those in those neighborhoods because they need to live near their aunt, near their grandma, near their mother, their sister, so that they can have some help with childcare. Yeah, no, those are really really good points, Amanda. How about you and your experience in Hawaii? What are you seeing? Sure. So in Hawaii, we have, you know, different people helping us, whether they're Section 8, the state, or whether they're through the county, you know, it's like everything works a little bit differently depending on who we're working with. So there's not much consistency there. Every time we're helping a Section 8 tenant, we're not exactly sure how it's going to go. And that's always makes it really difficult. And we're professional property managers, right? So a lot, our biggest competition here in Hawaii, you know, for clients is actually the mom and pop owners who are managing it themselves. And it's like, if we can't figure out how to work with section eight program, how are they going to figure it out? Right. So it's very daunting for most people. So I think here, the biggest problem is that it's just working with section eight. Right. So understanding it, yeah. understanding how it works. How, how does it work? Yeah. And, you, you know, you do have people who want to help Section 8 renters. And we do work with Section 8 as a company. And we have no issues usually with our tenants at all. It's really that arduous process of just getting that tenant in to the property. Sure. Right. So even if we have an owner who's willing to accept Section 8, let's say, um, or any other housing voucher. Um, and if we have several applications that come in and if they're all equally good, we're probably going to go with a tenant who can like move in right away, you know, versus having to do like what Tyler was describing after we accept them. Now we have to schedule a inspection that might take a few weeks, you know? And then, so by the time the tenant finally moves in, it might be a month from now. Right. And the owner can't afford a month vacancy, you know, well, if we have an application for someone who can move in next week, you know, we're going to go with them. Sure. So that's the big pain point. Yeah. That was one of my questions I had for the group. I know in California for sure, and I'm assuming this is true pretty much all over the country, the, the rental rates are all going up, right? So the, the cost or the price of rent is up, up, up. The demand is also sky high. You know, we put a property in the market and within hour, we already have 20 inquiries and sometimes people are just applying. I mean, it's crazy here in California. So I guess the question to the group, are you seeing issues with 
Section 8 in this program, keeping up with the market, to your point, Amanda, like, hey, we want to get someone in right away because we've got all these applicants, mm-hmm. right? We can't wait around. And maybe that area needs to be reformed a little bit or what's your experience is? Yeah, um, definitely when you talk about prices going up, you know, that's one of the things that we run into. One of the problems that we run into with Section 8 is, you know, we have a price listed for the the rental and, mm-hmm. you know, the applicant might come in thinking, my voucher might cover around this much, but, and we might actually go through the whole process of accepting this application and get to the very end. And section eight says, Oh, we're not going to pay that much. You know, we're only going to pay this much. Sure. You know, so they're not keeping up necessarily with the rental markets or understanding that there's a huge demand for rentals, you know, so let's be flexible in terms of what we can cover for rental prices. Puts a big burden on you guys to make those decisions and challenging to then keep up with, hey, how should we handle this? Yes. Patty, how about you? Are you seeing the same things? Yeah, if I could piggyback on what Amanda said, I agree with everything she said. And one of the trends we're seeing in our market as well is that, I mean, prices are significantly going up on the rental, the regular rental market. So if a tenant right now is paying $1,400 a month and they have to move, that same $1,400 is not going to buy them the same type of property that they're in right now, because that property is going to be renting for probably $1,650 or $1,700 a month. So it's, it's a real shocker. The other trend we're seeing is that the housing authorities in our area, at least, are experiencing the same kind of staffing shortages that all businesses are. And to address that, the trend that we've seen is they're now outsourcing the rent reasonableness test, which is the part of the process in the approval process where they determine if the rent the landlord is asking is reasonable compared to non-Section 8 rentals houses, properties that have rented that are similar to this property. And we, in my office, we always submit uh, rent comps to justify our price. So in the past, you know, we've submitted great comps close to the location, similar in age, similar in style, similar in size. We always met the reasonableness test because we asked reasonable rents. Now they're jobbing those out to these third-party companies that the, nobody in the housing authority is even looking at them. The, the trend here is they're sending them out to a company that's doing those valuations and the valuations are coming in ridiculously low. It's like it's like having a house sale appraisal dependent on Zillow. It is just yeah. I was going to say, kind of like a like an appraiser coming in, right? Almost. Well, but an appraiser puts real eyeballs on on properties. Sure. And our housing authority used to do that. Maybe not necessarily on the properties, but at least on the local the local comps. And we had the ability to you know submit comps and 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 regularize looked at them. So we're seeing. Um, you know, none of the valuation tools, we all know this, none of the valuation tools out there accurately predict what a true value is or what a true mm-hmm. rent is. It takes a human being to really look at that data. And so the result is, just like Amanda said, our values are coming in really, really low. And so I'm obligated to, in my state, source of income is a protected class. So I'm obligated to offer Section 8, but I am not obligated as a landlord or a property manager to accept a lower rent than I can get on the regular market if Section 8 comes in and denies the amount. So it's a it's a big problem for the voucher holder because they have a limited amount of time. The vouchers expire. So they're always on a deadline. If they, if they don't find a property 
that is submitted with the with the rent approved by their deadline, then they lose the right to have the voucher. They can get an extension or two. But in my market, it takes 10 days to get that rent approval. So one, the landlords, we pulled that house off the market for 10 days. So the landlord has lost time and income and the tenant, you know, time is, is critical to the tenant and valuable to the tenant as well, because they, for every day that goes by, that's another day closer to them being homeless. It's a tough process for the tenants. They have to give notice to their current landlord before they found a new place. So it's, you know, it's a stressful process for everyone. And those having those rents being driven, the the valuations lower than the real market is going to directly result in a lot of our voucher holders ending up homeless. Yeah. What I'm hearing from both of you is that your intent is good. You want to participate, you accept section eight, but the reality is that the market pressures on you to fill a home quickly for your client makes filling that vacancy with a section eight tenant super challenging. From a practical standpoint, as property managers, you want to play fair, you want to participate, but in reality, it just kind of kind of makes it difficult. And, you know, and one, other, one other rule of Section 8 that creates an, unplaying, an unfair playing field for the voucher holder is that in the world of landlording and property managers, money talks. So when we accept a tenant, our expectation yeah. is that we that the tenant be able to sign a lease and pay the deposit immediately, or we don't take the house off the market. Well, it, uh-huh. HUD rules don't allow the voucher holder to sign a lease or pay the deposit until the property has passed inspection, which is going to take 20 to 30 days. So in Virginia, we are very fortunate that our, our residential landlord tenant law specifically addresses this issue. And it has a clause that allows us to take a reservation fee from an applicant who can't sign a lease, which is, you know, it's almost as though it's written for Section 8 tenants. So in our state, we're able to take a reservation fee that replaces the need of signing the lease and paying the deposit. But I don't know if that's true in all states. And in in a state where reservation fees are not allowed, the voucher holder would be at an absolute disadvantage compared to someone who is allowed to sign the lease and pay the rent today and pay the deposit today. Sure. Yeah. Amanda, I see you nodding. Yeah. We don't have that in Hawaii. Yeah. In California, we're not allowed to take any fee except for rent, security deposit, and an application fee. That's it. So these other things just aren't allowed. You can take a rental deposit. Us as well. Amanda, what are you, what are you seeing? I mean, are some of these constraints uh, affecting you and your ability to accept at times Section 8 as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically all of those, <laughs> all of the above. I mean, I, and I feel like like landlords across mm-hmm. the nation are all we're all experiencing the same things. And we've all been saying it for a really long time. It's interesting because, you know, we're still having these conversations today, like as if it's a new conversation with our, with our current legislators, like here locally in Hawaii. And um, like, there's a news article out and it's kind of like, Oh, really? Like people are willing to accept section eight, but it's just the program is hard. (laughs) You know, I was like, yeah, it's like, we're we're trying to say that like for a long time now. It's just interesting. I think we all are going through the same pain points. So it's just a matter of, are they going to reform section eight? You know, like, are they going to make it easier? I mean, for us too, like there's so much paperwork, like actual paperwork where the tenant has to come in and we have to fill out all these forms and they need a wet signature and then they have to go back to the office and make copies and all these things. Like, you know, can't they make it electronic? Can't I, you know, can't I go and log in and verify who I am, you know, and like just fill everything out online, you know, so it takes seconds to process versus like days, you know, just for paperwork. I mean, I feel like there's simple things that we can just get everything up to this day and age to assist 
right? Like Patty said, with the comps and we can upload our comps, you know, and mm-hmm. someone can just look at it really quickly and say, yep, that makes sense. So it seems like there are some really common sense type of things that they could do nationwide to make this easier for landlords and, you know, just incentivize landlords, you know, so that it's just as easy. If it's just as easy to rent to a section eight person as someone not on section eight, sure, that would just, that would do it and, for us. And no lost income, you know, that, that waiting period Mm-hmm. Or in Virginia, our our law says that we have to, if we get a Section Eight applicant that meets all requirements, because we can't make a make a decision solely on voucher status, we have to wait 15 days. So if HUD mm-hmm. if HUD um, we have the landlord is obligated by our law to hold that property for 15 days. Well, right now we just had a, a Navy ship come into port. So we are flooding our rentals with military right now. And they want to move yesterday. You know, when they come and look, they want to yeah. see it. They want to move in right away. So that is half a month's rent that the landlord right. has lost because we're obligated to wait on a decision from the housing authority. Right. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. So, right. You know, now, if we if we got that sign-on bonus as you know is is suggested mm-hmm. in the law, then mm-hmm. the landlord would be compensated for that yes. waiting period, and then that would make sense. Yes, that's what I was going to say too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would like to add too that we're required to screen applicants the same way every single time, mm-hmm. right? And so that, of course, includes their income, including Section 8 income, but also their credit score, other aspects, right, pertaining to their ability to rent the property. And what I found challenging is that oftentimes it's just hard to qualify people through our normal screening process. You know, we want to participate. We are totally open to accepting Section 8, but sometimes the screening process gets in our way as well. Have you two experienced that? I would say no, no not really. In my company, we don't use credit score per se. As a criteria, we do look at credit Mm -hmm. and we are looking at threats to income. Um, But I use, I really, I mean, I don't really have an issue using the same criteria. Section 8 has more stringent criminal requirements for for compliance in their program than we as landlords are even allowed to use. That's a good point. uh, Which is a little mind boggling that HUD violates their own fair housing laws Mm -hmm. um, in terms of felony status. You know, that's, it's bizarre Mm -hmm. um, because you can't have a felony and have a Section 8 voucher, but yet we can't use felony status in making, um, you know, onboarding decisions with an application, you know, but I'm still looking at threats to income. You know, it's, if they have a delinquent account or a judgment with a furniture company, a car company, a credit card company, you know, any of those companies that I know are going to garnish are, are going to garnish wages or garnish income and they have earned income. And this wouldn't apply if all of their income is disability or social security because they're not garnishable. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I look at that and I apply the same criteria to whether it's section eight or non-section eight. Right. Amanda, how about you? Yeah. Um, it's kind of similar for us. Um, we let everyone know whether they're applicants for section eight or not. And even our clients let them know as well as kind of a something to ease their mind that, you know, whether they're a section eight or whether they're not section eight, you know, we're going to run their application and screen them exactly the same as everybody else. They will still have to pass the same criteria for us as a renter, Yep. you know, regardless of source of income. Okay. So Tyler, coming back to you, is HUD aware of this? Are some of these reforms and, and proposals that are being put forth in response to people like us who want to participate but are finding that challenging? Yes. Uh, so 1820, which is the reform bill I was talking about, uh, there was a lot of industry input on that. And it comes directly out of the pain points, whether it's managers of single-family properties like us in the Narpham world, 
our friends over at the apartment, the National Apartment Association, right, folks managing in large multifam. Of course, now when you have the change in administration, that means all of the policy people are all changing. They want housing and some, some form of housing support to be uh, an entitlement. And in this case, they're banking on the, the, the Section 8 program to do that. E- even folks at HUD will say, yeah, we know it's not working right. And so we're going to try and fix these things. And then there's a good bipartisan understanding there. It's now just moving it and may have been further down the road, you know, but for that that little thing called the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? There, there's so many things that a number of us were working on. And then, you know, of course, March of 2020 happens and the world, you know, turns upside down. Patty and Amanda, I know that when I've talked to our clients, you know, at my company, North County Property Group, and I've talked to owners about Section 8 and about the, you know, housing voucher program, there are often some misconceptions about the program. And so I don't know if you hear this when you talk to your property owners or even maybe among your staff, things that I've heard or, gee, you know, we might have trouble collecting rent from the HCV tenant participants, or maybe is it going to be more challenging to increase the rent from these types of tenants, or perhaps is it more difficult to evict those tenants? I mean, those are pretty much misconceptions, but do you think that exists in the market? And um, as property managers, does that put you in a difficult position? There's a lot of misconceptions. I actually teach a class locally about your perception versus my reality of Section 8. And I have a blog on my website about that. But I think the biggest misconception is people always say, oh, if I have a Section 8 tenant, they're going to trash my house. Mm. And, and a third of my the properties I manage are Section 8. So the majority of my intentional landlords are buying in the lower income neighborhoods where we qualify for the Section 8 amount and they love the program. But you have to know the rules of the program so you can use them for your advantage. So for example, if the tenant owes a water bill or they've done, we've had a Section 8 inspection and they've done damage that was caused by the tenant. We bill the tenant for that damage or the water bill, and we notify the Section 8 caseworker that the money is outstanding and unpaid, and that puts the voucher on hold. The tenant cannot move and port to another property. The portability ends at that point if they owe money to their current landlord, but only if the landlord or property manager notifies the housing authority. That's one of the misconceptions is people don't understand that, and so they think They're not going to get paid. And the reality is we do get paid on almost all of the damage that our Section 8 tenants do. We had, you know, July is a big move out month in general and in our world, it's our biggest month. I had one of my best move outs ever this month. I have an owner moving back into a Virginia Beach condo that had a Section 8 tenant in it. Um, And she left that property. Literally, the property is I swear not, better in better condition than it was when the landlord gave it to us. It's one of the best move outs we've ever done. We don't have to touch it. The owner is moving right in. He just gave me a glowing Google review. And then I have a property where we did an eviction today that it was a tenant who it was not my, t- not a tenant I placed. We inherited it. The owner brought us the tenant hoping to do an eviction before you know the pandemic happened or before the moratorium happened. It was not a Section 8 tenant. It was a family, two-income family, husband and wife. They both worked. And it was it's absolutely one of the worst move-outs we've ever done. Um, the house is atrocious. And it's a non-Section 8 tenant. My number one worst damage tenant ever was, I'm in a military town, 
was among my favorite tenants as, as people. They were three young military officers. They did more damage and not on purpose, but because they they don't pay a lot of attention. And so we ended up with a mold issue, um, a big, expensive thing to fix. Mm-hmm. But with the Section 8 tenants, an issue like that almost never happens because they're sort of semi-trained in the home inspection process. They go through the process of a home inspection at least once a year. Once a year, so they get trained more than the average bear on things to look for and things that put a property at risk. So if we have a link under the sink, which I want to know about as a property owner, I want to know about a link under the sink. You know, right. I, I, that's something I need to fix. A Section Eight tenant is way more likely to notify us of those um, those issues than a non-Section 8 tenant who isn't quite as aware. So HUD has a lot of a lot of benefits and a lot of advantages, but people don't, they don't do enough volume in it, I think, to learn the system and they don't talk to enough people. And there's there's really not a lot of education out there to teach landlords how to use those HUD rules to their advantage. Those are really good points. How about you, Amanda? Do you see and hear misconceptions when it comes to Section 8? Yeah, actually, Patty, you just kind of like summarize everything so perfectly because <laughs> that's, that is the, the most common misconception that, that I hear when I talk to my owners about potentially renting to section eight, that is just like the number one comment that I get, you know, well, what happens if they trash my unit? And, you know, funny enough, I've had the exact same experience of move outs yeah. with like, unfortunately like military or with just the average working person, you know? And, um, I like to tell my, my owners, like some of my best tenants are, are on section eight and they stay forever <laughs> and they're really easy to work with. Well, and you know that they're going to have rent. Exactly. You know, and people that are looking for something long-term, like long-term tenants, section eight can be great for that because yeah, if it's a good fit for everybody, you know, they might end up staying for a long time. Mm-hmm. So those other misconceptions that you were mentioning, Bob, I don't really get too much. I don't know if it's the same everywhere, but like here in Hawaii, we do have to give like a 90 day notice for any changes. Wow. Um, ver- like in rent price versus, oh. yeah, wow. versus like traditionally we don't have to give any notice if they're coming up on a lease renewal, you know, we just let them know, right. Usually like a month and a half yeah. before. So it does kind of tie things up actually in terms of, you know, like rental increases or things like that here. So, you know, to me, that's not really a misconception, at least here locally, <laughs> but, um, but definitely the idea that tenants are going to be worse tenants or destroy property, you know, just because they're on section eight is, you know, definitely a big misconception. Well, wow. This has been a great episode. We could go on talking (laughs) about this probably the rest of the day, right guys? But in the interest of time, we need to wrap up and I appreciate the comments so much. I think in summary, we can unanimously say as a group of property managers that, and also as members of NARPM, that we embrace and fully support the goals and purpose of the housing choice voucher program. We've been calling it section eight synonymously. And I think we also recognize our responsibilities as property managers and landlords under the program. And to Tyler and the panel, any last words or thoughts for the audience on it? And uh, we know that there are a lot of proposals out there, hopefully to improve it. Let's start with you, Amanda. Any last thoughts as we kind of wrap up today? Um, Just keep the conversation going, you know, reach out to your legislators and your local HUD officials. And, you know, hopefully little by little, we can support positive changes and reform for Section 8 just to make it easier for us to be able to work with them. I mean, that would be the best thing for everybody. Great input. Patty, how about you? Yeah, I would, I would just also piggyback just from a timing standpoint now to um, let our legislators understand that by extending the moratorium, 
It is decreasing the number of properties that are available for our worthy mm. Section 8 voucher holders. There are no properties for them right now because our properties are so many properties are occupied with non-paying tenants that our voucher holders are not those folks. They're paying tenants. And it would be nice to free up some of these um, properties so that folks that are in full compliance um, with the HUD program had some place to go. Yeah, I'd like to throw in uh, my two cents here to educate yourself on the program. If you're a landlord or a property manager, make sure you know about it. I think we've all talked about that, how there's a lot of misconceptions or maybe people aren't fully educated. I think that's a really important aspect. Tyler, how about you? Any last comments before we wrap up today? Can't, I cannot uh, say it any better than the three of y'all did. And that's, of course, it's just a testament to how much of a privilege it is to be y'all's voice in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I think y'all, y'all I've just covered it wonderfully. There's, I have, there's nothing I can add to make it any better. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tyler, Patty, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a great episode. Hopefully we'll all see each other sometime at an upcoming NARPM function or, or conference. Yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you, Bob. Thanks so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. See you guys. As we wrap up today, I'd like to make another quick plug to our listeners to click on the subscribe button and give us a like. Also, please pay it forward with a positive review to help encourage more great guests to come on the show. That concludes today's episode of the Property Management Brainstorm. Thank you for joining. Until next time, we will be in the field working hard for our clients to maximize rental income and property value while maintaining top tenant relations. And we'll catch you next time.